0: This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see you here at GYC, and uh, it's always a blessing to be here myself. Uh, I look forward to GYC each year. It's always one of the highlights of my year, and I trust that it will be one of the highlights of 2016 for you as well. How many of you are here at GYC for the first time? Can I just see your hands? Okay, quite a few of you. And um, I just hope that this will be a very special time for you. I'm going to just briefly uh Give an overview of what we're going to be looking at today. We have uh, four sessions together, and I realize that uh, that we may not uh, all be interested in all four of them. But today we're going to start with a power in the Word, and we're talking about how God's Word is important in our Christian growth and our Christian life. And um, we're going to be looking at the Bible. And I hope, I sincerely hope that you brought your Bibles today. Uh, that's going to be helpful because we're going to be using our Bibles, and we're going to be looking at them uh, this morning in our first period, Power in the Word, uh, the irresistible, incredible power to change lives. Um, the second session is going to be called uh, The Nature and Revela- of Revelation and Inspiration. And basically, we're going to be looking at how the Bible was, was given to us. We're going to be looking at sort of defining some of the processes, how God worked, uh, how God didn't work, um, what the prophets' roles were, and, uh, and so how we can understand biblical inspiration. Now, our views on revelation and inspiration dictate how we interpret the Bible, and you're going to find that to be very interesting. The third seminar is a brief history on biblical interpretation, and we'll be looking at, starting around the Christian era, um, the time of Christ, we're going to be looking at how the Bible has been viewed and interpreted and understood, and what's interesting is we look at these patterns or cycles, we see that um, we see that there's really nothing new. When we when we see new methods of interpretation, they're really not new methods; they're the same old ones that have been used in the past, and we are just sort of rediscovering them in some cases, unfortunately. Um, and then the fourth today is going to be. Uh, practical pointers for interpreting scripture and applying it to your life. So this is how to get into the Bible and to really start um, applying what it says. Um, you know, biblical interpretation is a very, very important subject because if you look at Christianity and even within our own denomination, the differences that we have boil down to our views on nature, uh, the nature of Revelation and inspiration and how we interpret the Bible. We all have the same Bible, right? So we should all agree on everything. Um, but we don't all read it the same way. We don't all understand it the same way. And when I say we should all agree on everything, I'm I'm talking about the major things. We'll never agree on every little minutia, every little detail. But um, hopefully, if we understand and we agree on our method of interpretation, we'll come to the same major conclusions. Tomorrow, we're going to be looking at understanding prophecy, principles of prophetic interpretation, and then Sabbath, we'll be looking at how to get the most out of personal devotional life. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, we just thank you that you've given to us an opportunity today to be at GYC. Lord, so many people, young people around the world have been wishing they could be here. And uh, they're, they're uh, with bated breath tuning in, going online, logging in, uh, trying to get every uh, benefit they can. And Lord, you've given us the blessing of actually being here. I just pray that you would help us to make the most of this opportunity. And Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray that you'd help us to understand it. And especially now in this first session, that you'd help us to understand how important and powerful it is in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a story. Um, this is a story going back to my college days. Um, it happened in, the, uh, in, the, in eastern um, Malaysia. And uh, we were going uh, on a mission trip there, and um, a group of us were visiting a village in a, in a fairly remote tribe um, where they lived in longhouses. Now, this is a, this is a picture of a longhouse, um, and I think that's one of the longhouses we stayed at. And there's actually, the whole village is like one or two of these longhouses, and um, they, all, they all sort of share... Um, the same porch and uh, same yards, front yard, backyard, et cetera. It's just sort of a, just a big long house. And um, we were there doing some medical missionary work. And um, as we were finishing up in one village, uh, the, the, our guide, who was a native of that region, he said, we've got to go to another village. This was on a Sabbath evening, as I recall. Um, we've got to go to another village. Well, how far is that other village? Now, remember, we've got our backpacks, and we're all uh, carrying our gear. And, and um, he, said, he, he said, well, it's about one cigarette. Uh, they didn't have watches, so they measured their time by how long it took to burn a cigarette. And so they said, that's not far, one cigarette. Well, I decided they must have some very, very long burning cigarettes, Because we left just before dark, and after darkness fell, we started getting uh, a little bit uh, slowed down. The problem was our guide, he had a torch. It was just some sort of a a stick that was burning, and he was walking along the trail with this stick. But there were some 20 of us, and I think we had three flashlights between us. So we're we're walking along. This is in the tropics. This is, uh, you know, I'm sure it's rained in the last 24 hours. The trail is muddy. At some places, it's it's these... uh, steep hills up and down, and, and ultimately, you would be going along and you would hear a piercing shriek as another victim fell in the mud. And sometimes when they fell, they would go down the hill and take out everyone and below them as they went down the hill in the mud. We were wading through rivers up to our waist or higher, and um, in the dark, we couldn't see where we were going. It was quite an experience. What I learned from this experience was that it helps to have a flashlight. Yeah, it really does. It helps to have a flashlight with batteries and with a bulb and all the rest, the working flashlight, because when you have a flashlight, you can see where you're going. And when we returned the next afternoon, when we returned from that village, we were able to see some of the places we had gone over the night before, and some of them we had, we had, we had been sort of feeling our way, and with some dim light of a light nearby, we had gone across these logs not realizing there was a creek a long ways down below that we had crossed over in the dark. Having a light makes a big difference. And so today we're going to be talking about how the Word of God is important in our lives. And the Bible uses the, the, the metaphor of a lamp to describe the Bible. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Verse 130 says, The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Now, this is a reality. If we want to grow spiritually, we have to go to the source of understanding. The Bible says that's the Word of God. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. If we want to understand, we need to go to the source. The source is the Word of God. Now, there are many people who, when they become a Christian, they sort of feel like, well, uh, you know, I've learned the doctrines, I've, or maybe even I've grown up in the church, I already understand about God's love. I already know about these things, right? What more is there to learn? It's sort of like becoming a basketball player. You know, once you reach the NBA, you decide, you know, I'm in the NBA. I don't need to practice anymore, right? Um, would, would, Would the person that didn't practice in the NBA, would they stay a professional very long? Of course not, because they need to continue training and practicing. No one reaches medical school and says, I've arrived. I don't need to study. Um, this, is, this, is, this is where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to medical school. No one reaches adulthood and decides they don't need to eat anymore, do they? When we are fully grown, we don't decide, well, that's all I needed. You know, I don't want to get any bigger. So, uh, well, some of us, I suppose, we need to do that. But um, we don't make those decisions. It doesn't make sense. So why does it seem like sometimes we don't feel a need to keep learning and growing as a Christian? Um, so we're going to examine a little bit about the Bible, what the Bible says about itself and how the Bible uh, realizes its own importance. We're going to look at a couple of verses here, and we're going to look at the, the, the Bible as a sword, in fact, sharper than a two-edged sword. So follow me through a number of verses here as we're going to be looking at them together. We're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, let's just parse this a little bit. We're going to be talking more about how to understand this, uh, these type of passages in the future there our coming seminars, but let's just look at this verse a little bit uh, more closely. First it says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined where? in our hearts. So, that's us personally, right? That's not talking about in our denomination. It's not talking about at GYC. This is talking about us personally. God commands, the same God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts. Now, this is a, this is a precious promise because, young people, there is no way that you are alive and God hasn't been working in your life. That's the truth. God commands the light to shine out of darkness and even if there's, there's problems or in your past, even if you don't come from a perfect environment or background, God commands the light to shine out of darkness, and that light shines in our hearts. It's a personal thing for us today, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this is interesting, because in the Bible, we understand glory to often talk about character, right? Have you ever heard that? comparison before um, that comes from Exodus chapter 33 and uh, 34 um, when when, when uh, Moses asked God show me your glory and God caused his character to pass before him right um, we all are changed when we behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed from glory to glory into that same image right? Uh, the second uh, Corinthians tells us. So, so the glory is a character. So the Bible is, is telling us he's shining in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory or character of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, usually when we, we think of the face of Jesus Christ, we don't always say, well, I don't even, how do I, how do I have the character of God from the face of Jesus Christ, right? That doesn't even make sense when we don't know exactly what Jesus looked like. But this is is not what the Bible is trying to say. If we look at the face of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, we notice what is prominent. Out of his mouth goes forth a what? A sharp sword. So looking at the face of Jesus Christ, one of the things we're going to see is the sharp sword, right? And what is that sharp sword? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 tells us, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God the sword of the spirit is the word of God Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword uh, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart so this is what we're seeing from God's word so far God's word is very central to who Jesus is. If we look at the face of Jesus, what we see is God's Word, right? We say, we'll turn our eyes upon Jesus, right? Look full in His wonderful face. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You hear people say that. How do you keep your eyes on Jesus? Well, one of the most effective ways to keep your eyes on Jesus is to keep looking at His Word. Because that's what we see when we see the face of Jesus. And the face of Jesus is how we, re- we have revealed to us the character of God. The character of God is very important. It's how we learn. It's how we learn. And so the, the, the sword of the Spirit, the Bible says, is the Word of God, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing the soul and spirit. I like to think of the Bible sort of like a surgeon's scalpel, right? Now, none of us are very fond of surgery. We don't usually like to say, yeah, for Christmas, I'm going to get a surgery, or for Christmas, I'm, I'm you know, on, I can't wait till break. I'm going to go on surgery. Um, that's not what we usually look forward to, right? So, why do people go under the knife? Why do people have surgeries? It's usually because there's a problem, right? It's usually because they have a sickness, there's a disease. And the reality is that you and I are infected by the sickness of sin. We have cancers growing in our character, right? That's the reality. I'm not trying to judge. I'm just saying, from my personal experience and the authority of God's word, we all have areas in which the sword of the Spirit, that surgeon's scalpel, is able to slice. And thankfully, it's very, very sharp. It's able, it's, able to, it's able to slice right between the good and the bad, perfect margins. It's able to do what God needs it to do to change our hearts and lives. Now, we don't always appreciate that, but the purpose of a, of a scalpel is not to kill or to hurt the purpose of a scalpel is to bring healing, right? It's to, it's to take those things that are necessary to be removed out of our life and to allow those things that are healthy to remain. God's Word will do that if we allow it to. So let's look in our Bibles. If you have your Bibles, I want us to notice a couple of passages. First of all, we're going to look at God's Word as an agent of conversion. We're going to look in, um, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to study how God's Word is an agent of conversion. Now, um, we understand that we can have all kinds of good things heard at GYC. You can hear a lot of theology. You can hear a lot about God. And I believe God can even speak to you through sermons and through messages. But ultimately, if you and I are going to be converted... We need to have a personal encounter with the Word of God. First Peter, chapter 1 and verse 23. Now this is what the Bible says, "Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God." N- d- did you find that? Is that what it says? I'm reading today from the English Standard Version, um, but the Bible's saying it's an incorruptible seed, the King James says, it's an incorruptible seed which lives and abides forever. There's something eternal about God's Word. Are we eternal? No, we're not eternal. We're, we're mortals. Um, we are finite, but God's Word is eternal. It lives and abides forever, and if we want to live and abide forever, we have to be born again, and the Bible here, Peter Hill tells us that we are born again through this eternal Word, which lives and abides forever. The Word of God is the agent of our conversion. It's through the Word of God that we are converted, born again, I should say. So when we uh, neglect the Word of God, we are neglecting the very agent that God has placed for our conversion. I want us to look at another, another passage um, as the word as an agent of cleansing. And we're going to look at several passages here, so um, get your Bibles out again, and we're going to look at it. First, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, and uh, we're going to begin with verse 25 or so. Ezekiel chapter 36, we're going to read verses 25 through 27. This is God promising to put His Spirit within us. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, and he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. The next verse is what we know a little better. Verse 26 is the best known verse, I think, in this chapter. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So this is a promise that God gives to us. Notice with me the promises. The promise is that I will sprinkle, what does he say? I will sprinkle what? Clean water on you. And what's the effect of that going to be? That will clean you of your uncleanness or filthiness and purify you from your idols, right? Isn't that what it says? Is that a good news? Yeah. Now, we don't today, <clears throat> I hope, we don't have physical idols like the children of Israel might have had, but the reality is we have the same hearts, don't we? The same fallen hearts. We have the same sinful natures, and we need the same purification that they needed in the days of Ezekiel. And we still have idols, don't we? They're just different. They may not be as visible, they may not be as much uh, objects, uh, maybe they are, but there are things in our hearts that are of greater importance to us than our relationship with Jesus. That's an idol, right? There's something that we struggle to give up. You know, some people ask me, they say, Chester, um, you know, the, you, you talk about surrender, You've heard people talking about surrender. How do I give my life to Jesus? Well, you just surrender your life to Jesus. And people have asked me, young people have asked me, how do I surrender everything to God? I mean, isn't that really a difficult task? Every day I have to remember everything that I'm supposed to surrender? I mean, how many things can I surrender every day? You know, I mean, what if I miss something? What if I forget something? I mean, it's, a, it's an honest, legitimate question. How do I know if I've surrendered everything to Jesus? Right? And the reality is, my answer to that is always very simple. The Holy Spirit works upon your heart asking you to surrender something. Something. And usually it's something that's the dearest to your heart, at least that you're aware of. And when the Holy Spirit asks you to surrender something that's the nearest and dearest to your heart... You have to make a decision. Am I going to give this to Jesus or am I not? Now, it's not always a bad thing, by the way. Did you know that you have... The Holy Spirit sometimes asks us to surrender good things? Because good things can be an idol too. Our job, our career, our family, our relationships, things that are not of themselves wrong still need to be placed on the altar of sacrifice that Jesus might reign supreme in our hearts, right? So what I tell people is, look, if you are willing to surrender the thing that is dearest to you, that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of, if you have surrendered that thing which is the hardest for you to surrender, then you have surrendered everything. Think of it this way, okay? It's not so much a list of things that we must surrender as much as it is an attitude of our heart. Towards the things that we need to surrender. In other words, I'll say it another way. If our heart is surrendered, things are surrendered. The opposite in my mind of surrender is rebellion. Okay. And my theory is that a rebellion and surrender cannot coexist in the heart the heart is either in a surrendered state or it's not. That's why the Bible teaches us the way we relate to the higher powers, the government, others around us, is also the way that we're relating to God. If we're in rebellion against one of the powers that God has placed over us, then we, our heart cannot simultaneously be in rebellion and surrender. Does that make sense? So it's, it's not so much God, you know, have I surrendered everything is... God is my heart. Am I willing to surrender everything? And if God can bring us to that place, we can surrender everything. So this is what Ezekiel is promising us. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from your filthiness and clean from all your idols. That's a good promise, isn't it? Wouldn't you like some of that water? That's what the Bible is saying, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit will I put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh (coughs) and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So this is an amazing promise, and it all starts with God sprinkling what? Clean water upon us. So what is that clean water that God sprinkles upon us? Let's look at another verse, John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we understand the Bible by precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. You know what that means? It does not mean that we take verses out of context, try to make them say things they don't say. You know, um, I once heard the story of a man who wanted to understand God's will for his life, so he used the, the, random, the random method, you know, of Bible study where he just closed his eyes and flipped his pages around and put his finger on a text, opened his eyes to see what God was going to say to him. Um, have you heard of that method? It's not really recommended, really. It's, um, there's nothing wrong with reading random Bible texts, but how we put them together can sometimes be problematic. And this perhaps, uh, perhaps imaginary story illustrates that. He, the first verse that he looked at, said, Judas went and hanged himself. Well, he wasn't sure exactly what that meant, so he tried again. He went and flipped in the Bible, and and uh, the next verse he landed on, he read it, and it said, go thou and do likewise. So he said, this isn't too good, so he uh, flipped the pages again, and the third verse he, said, he landed on said, that which thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> so that's the abuse of what we would call the proof text method, right? That's not a proof text method. That's just sort of randomly looking at Bible verses. But the proof text method takes different passages and helps, each passage helps explain another passage. So we're going to look in John chapter 15 to help us understand what this clean water is that God promises to sprinkle upon us. We're going to read verse 3. John 15 and verse 3, are you there? And this is what it says. And you are clean through the word that I have spoken to you. Do You see that? So the disciples, Jesus says, you have experienced cleansing, you're clean, through what? Through the word. Through the word. Now, the disciples weren't studying their Bibles. They may have been reading some of the Old Testament. I don't know. But Jesus says, the word that I've spoken to you has power to clean you. Just like that clean water that we read about in, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 36 and uh, verse 25. Uh, let's look at one more verse, um, or two more verses here. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. And uh, we're going to see here Another passage that reveals to us how God works to cleanse us. Um, It starts by saying, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with, what does it say? The word, by the word. The washing of water by the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So this is the promise that God says he's going to do. He's going to sprinkle clean water upon us. From John chapter 15 and Ephesians chapter 5, we can understand that clean water, the agent of God's cleansing, is actually the word of God. Jesus says, you are clean through the word which I've spoken to you. Ephesians chapter 5 says, he'll wash, he'll cleanse the church by the washing of water by the word. The word of God has the ability to clean our hearts and our lives if it's accepted and, and, and allowed into our hearts to do its work. How that happens, we'll uh, understand a little later. But we're going to, today or this first period, we're wanting to simply understand how important it is in the Christian's life to have this agent of conversion, this agent of cleansing. You see, we have here one more verse. We're going to look at this on this question 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. I don't know about you, but I want that experience of cleansing. I need that experience of cleansing. I need freedom from those things that would seek to. To sit on the throne of my heart instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says this. Uh, now and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, and this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We're being transformed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord, the King James says. So this is the experience that God wants us to have, right? Always growing, always improving, always learning. That cleansing experience, that washing experience, that freedom from the idols experience that Ezekiel talked about, all of that happens, that character transformation happens as we experience the Word of God. Now, I want to be very, very honest with you. It's very important that we understand as GYC, as young people, as some of the Adventist young people. It's very important that we understand that coming to GYC and being straightened out theologically is not going to help us be ready for the second coming. Not that, not that that's not important. I believe in truth. You understand. But ultimately, ultimately what we need is that glory-to-glory glory experience, right? We need that experience, a personal experience of our lives being changed. I want I to just illustrate this to you by looking at two passages in the book of Revelation before we move on, can we? I want us to just look at two passages you're very familiar with. I want you to see how I think um, Jesus is waiting for a new experience in the church, in God's people. Revelation chapter 14, we're going to start with the three angels' messages, and I want you to see here something very, very important. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, we're going to start, and we're going to read verse 6. Right? Uh, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. When you're there, can you say amen? All right. So let's read it. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead in the midst of heaven with an everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And he said with a loud voice, a what? A loud voice, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of waters. So what kind of a voice did this angel give the message in? A loud voice, right? A very loud voice. And by the way, the second angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen. A third angel said, followed them, saying with a loud voice also, if any man worships the beast in his image or receives a mark in his forehead or his hand, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So here you have the three angels' messages, and they're going all around the world, right? And they're being proclaimed with a what kind of voice? A loud voice. Now, is a loud voice a good thing when you're trying to get a message out? <clears throat> yeah, it is. There's nothing wrong with having a loud voice. This, is, this isn't my words. This is the Bible, right? The Bible said there would be this experience of a global message at the end of time. Um, we don't have time to really dwell on the interpretation of the, third, the three angels' messages, but this, I believe, to be a, a, a prediction of the Advent movement, of the message of Adventism, a message calling people back to the Word of God, preaching the hour of his judgment, calling people back to Sabbath worship. By the way, creation and the flood is all in that first angel's message as well. Giving glory to him, give glory to God, the first angel's message says, the health message, whether for, before you eat or drink or whatsoever you do. This is a prediction of Adventism arising. And is it going to be just a local phenomenon or is it going to be worldwide? Worldwide. Is it going to be successful in telling people? Yes, there's a loud voice. The world hears it. And by the way, the 7th Adventist church, one of the youngest denominations in the world, is also one of the fastest growing. We have done a good job of getting the message out to the world. Not as good as we'd like to do. I'm sure not as good as the Lord would like us to do. But the, the message is gone, right? We have uh, Adventist presence in more countries than any other Protestant denomination. In fact, if you count the work of ADRA, we are in more countries than even the Roman Catholic Church. More countries and territories. We have a global message. And by the way, that's one of the ways we. I believe that I'm a part of God's last day remnant movement is because I'm a part of a global one. That's, that's, that's one of the characteristics, right, of God's last day church. It's going to be a global movement, a global message. So this is a loud voice. But I want you to notice something. Before Jesus comes, the message and the movement needs something more than a loud voice, In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you realize that loud voices, if I have a loud voice, but I don't have love, I'm just a nuisance, right? Yeah, we won't, we won't pause there. But look with me in Revelation chapter 18. This is what we sometimes refer to as the fourth angel. Which angel? The fourth angel. And the fourth angel's message, like the three angels' messages... The fourth angel's message is a prediction of Adventism in its final and most glorious stages as a movement. It's a prediction that there's something going to happen beyond just giving the three angels messages with a loud voice. Notice what it says. And I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he cried out with a mighty mighty voice. So there's that loud voice again. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and so forth. Now there's nothing new. Listen to me carefully. There is nothing new in the message of the fourth angel that is not also included or implied in the message of the first three angels. There's no new ideology. In other words, the fact that Babylon has fallen has already been expressed in the second angel's message, right? The second angel's message was given with a loud voice, just like the fourth angel's message. But there's something different about the fourth angel's message, Notice me, verse 1 again, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was made, what, bright with his glory, or the earth was lightened with his glory. Now, what did we understand is this glory symbolizing in the Bible? Character, right? We are changed, looking in that looking glass of God's word, being cleansed by the washing of the water of the word, we are changed from glory to glory, Right? Character to character, God is transforming us to become more like Christ, more like Him, to reflect His character of love. The fourth angel not only has a loud voice when it gives its message, it has a character that is so astounding that it lightens the whole world with the glory of God. Do you understand what the difference is? I want you to understand, friends, I'm not trying to cast any disparaging remarks upon Adventism in the last 160, 170 years. That's not my point. My point is that the message in the future is going to be more glorious. The work is not going to be finished by us proving with more texts the truth. The work is going to be finished by those texts changing our hearts and lives to be more like Christ so the world sees the Adventist message and says, wow, that is the character of God, the character of love. The whole earth is going to be lightened with the glory of God. Now, how does that happen? Is it because angels come down? Or is it because you and I have a deeper experience with God's Word? To demonstrate that God can use us even now, if we're not fully reflecting the character of God, to demonstrate that God can use the first three angels' messages, just with a loud voice, we have to look no further than the story of Jonah. Did you ever think of Jonah and the three angels' messages? Well, this is how I see the connection, okay? Jonah was called to go and preach with a loud voice, wasn't he? He was called to go to Nineveh. We know he was reluctant, more than reluctant. He was disobedient, rebellious. He didn't go to Nineveh. He went the opposite direction. God had a course reversal in store for him, and he ended up being deposited by that fish on the shore to head towards Nineveh. He went to Nineveh, and I wish I had a transcript of Jonah's sermons, because Jonah had, arguably, the most successful evangelistic series of all times. The city of Nineveh was a great Nineveh. It was New York City of, to, of, of that day. This was a wealthy city. This was a city of arts and culture. This was a city of cosmopolitan integration of many different peoples. This was a, this was a wicked city as well. They were a godless people, at least just in relation to the God of heaven. And Jonah somehow, sent by God, right? With a message of truth, right? He preached the truth, and the whole city became converted. If you come back to next year's GYC and say, I have won New York City for Christ, the mayor and Donald Trump and everybody's repented, and they're they're all, they're all... Turning to God, I'd shake your hand. That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? The greatest evangelist series of all times, Jonah. Evangelist Jonah. God used him in a mighty way. Would you agree? You remember how the story ends. Jonah heads outside of Nineveh after preaching his evangelist series. Everybody's repented. Jonah heads outside to watch the fireworks. And when God did not destroy Nineveh as he had warned that he would, what was Jonah's attitude? Remember that? Remember? Jonah became angry and insolent because God had not done what he thought God should do, destroying this wicked pagan city. I did my part, now God, you should do your part. You see, at At its basic element, the story of Jonah teaches us that we can be successful in evangelism without having the character of God. We can give the three angels' message to the whole world with a loud voice and be successful at it without having the character of God. Jonah's sitting out there in the desert, and you remember God caused a a gourd to grow up with those big leaves, you know, and he's shaded by this gourd in the desert sun, and then as he's moaning and groaning and lamenting the fact that God hasn't done what he thinks he should do and hasn't gotten rid of these evil Ninevites who have caused him so much grief and, you know, being swallowed by fish and all the rest, and he's out there feeling sorry for himself, God sends a worm. The second thing the story of Jonah teaches me is that when God uses us, we shouldn't get proud because God can use worms, Right? God send a worm. This is what the Bible says. I'm not making it up, right? Read it for yourself. God sends a worm, destroys the gourd, the gourd wilts, and Jonah, God points out this to Jonah. This is the way it ends, the book. Jonah, you have more concern over a plant that you didn't even nurture than you do over a city with a couple hundred thousand people who were doing wrong just because they didn't know any better. It ends with that question of God interrogating Jonah. Is that the right priority? Is your character the way it should be, right? And so we understand what I'm saying to you today. What I'm saying to you today is that if we want to be a part of God's final generation, you know, the character of of GYC, the spirit of GYC is to take the three angels' messages to the world in this generation, right? If we want to be a part of that generation that sees Jesus come, if we want to avoid the nursing homes and all the rest that will come if Jesus doesn't come, right, then we have to not just be giving with a loud voice. We have to be having that word transform our hearts and lives from glory to glory so that we can be a part of that fourth angel's message predicted. Listen, it's going to happen. Do you believe it? I mean, the Bible says right here, Revelation chapter 18, just like the first three angel's messages happened, 1844 and on, we see that the Bible prophecy can be trusted. It's going to happen. The question is, is it going to be us? Is it going to be our generation that allows God to work in our hearts, to cleanse us, to change us, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. So the Word of God reveals to us the character of God. If we surrender to what the Word of God says, we will be changed more and more into the character of God. There, I, I often, often say there are only two things that we really need to know in order to be saved. I'm not talking about two things you only need to do. I'm saying there's only two pieces of knowledge, of information, that you really need to know in order to be saved, okay? I, I like to simplify things down to their most basic element, right? So in my, in my mind, there's only two things you know if, in order to be saved. You don't need to have to worry about um, all the rest of the knowledge. God will teach you as you need to know other things. But there are two things to be saved you need to know. The first is who God is. You need to meet Jesus and understand something about grace, Something about His character. Something about His unconditional love. If you know who God is, there's one other thing you need to know. You need to know who you are. The Word of God is the instrument by which God both reveals to us God's character and reveals to us our character. And that really is the only thing that you need. Those two things. If you know who God is and you know who you are, you can make a decision based on that knowledge that will be for salvation. That is the that is the simplest way I can expre- explain that uh, we have to know um, what we have to know. We have to know who God is. We have to know who we are. Well, you might say, I know who God is. I read, I read uh, my little friend, my uh, was um, my Bible friends. Um, I, I I grew up in Sabbath school. Um, I go to church. I know who God is. I know who I am. You know. The reality is, what I'm, what I'm trying to say, it's not just like... It's not who you are, like your name and social security number. We need to know that we are sinners in need of grace, forgiveness on a daily basis, okay? We need to recognize our frailty and our faultiness, our humanity, our need for Jesus. I'll be honest, sometimes... When we do evangelism, we teach people how to study to understand the doctrines. We aren't always as good at teaching people how to study the Word of God so that it can show them every day their need for Jesus. It's easier for us to say, well, are you going to surrender your job, which has Sabbath conflicts? than it is to teach someone to study God's word and learn to surrender whatever that idol is in their heart that day. Because listen, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, there's still something God is calling for you to lay on the altar and to allow Jesus to, to take and either give you something better or to take it, give it back and sanctify it. Now it's in the right place in your life. So when we study the word of God, our Bible study, as we're going to talk about later, Our personal devotions are not so much to be able to show what we believe. That's important, too. But the most important thing in our devotional life is that we can, for today, understand that God loves me and that I need Him. I study my Bible not so that I can have proof texts to baffle the Baptists, I study my Bible so that I can be converted for today. It's a daily experience. It's a daily walk. And today, I may know that I need Jesus. Particularly when I'm presenting a seminar at GYC, I feel my need. Tomorrow, that knowledge of my need today does not necessarily mean that I stay with that knowledge tomorrow. It's as as I spend time in God's Word. That I reveal to, that He reveals to me my need for Him. I re- find my character. And so the decision I make will then allow me to grow in my experience with Jesus. Now, real quickly, um, if we surrender to Jesus, if we surrender to the Word of God, we'll be changed more and more into the character of God. Uh, Real quickly, I want to go through a couple of basic Bible steps how to study the Bible, because I don't think all of you are going to be here for all six seminars. Um, So this is going to be something that you can take. You're welcome to, by the way. I'd be happy for you to, but I know how seminars go at GYC. There's so many good things, and, uh, and you, may, you may be moving on to something else that you're interested in next seminar. What I want you to leave with is at least some basic ideas about how to study the Bible, because we want that washing of water by the Word, right? We want God to sprinkle His clean water upon us, to cleanse us from our filthiness and from our idols. So first of all, we want to make it a habit, have a set time of day and protect it. There are some people um, who... who uh, who have a, have a difficult time doing it first thing in the morning. I recommend it first thing in the morning. I recommend it um, the first thing when you wake up, when your eyes, or even before your eyes open, when you're aware of, 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 your, of, your, uh, of yourself, I guess, you're awake, right? Um, have a prayer of surrender. First thing. And if you just make it a habit, then every single time you wake up, the first thing you have is, Lord, I want to give this day to you. I want to give my heart to you. I want to give all of my plans and lay them at your feet to be carried out or to be given up as you indicate. I want to. I want you to dwell in my heart. So make it a habit. And believe it or not, one of the best ways to make it a habit to wake up with that prayer in your heart is to go to bed with that prayer in your heart. That's has my experience. How do you... How do you make a habit of waking up with a certain thought in your mind? Uh, well, well, you could ask God, perhaps. He answers prayers, doesn't he? Um, but if you will if you will go to bed with a prayer of surrender, you can wake up with a prayer of surrender as well. And there's nothing more wonderful than just waking up and your first thought turning to God. And if that's your habit, it's a, it's a wonderful habit to make. Make it a habit. Set it, have a set time of day and start. And protect that time for Bible study. For some people, depending on your family, depending on a lot of other things, it might have to be another time besides the first thing when you wake up. Others, um, I I definitely find in the morning is is when I need the strength for that day. So for me, that's what I I prefer. But we see that Jesus spent time communing with God not just in the morning, but also in the evening too, didn't he? Um, There were times when Daniel would go three times a day and pray. So the second the second point of, I would just make about how to study the Bible is to make it a conversation. There was a time in my devotional life when I segregated prayer and Bible study. I prayed, then I studied, right? And I found that, I have found that it's even better, nothing wrong with that, but it's even better if the whole time I'm studying, I'm also praying. It's supposed to be a conversation. You don't have to, you don't, When you go to see your friend, you usually don't, okay, this is my five minutes to talk. You be quiet. And you talk for five minutes, and then it's their friend, there's five minutes to talk. Maybe some friends are that way. I don't know. Um, But the reality is we usually have a conversation, right? And God wants to talk to us. So when I study my Bible, I'm not just reading and saying, hmm, I wonder what that means. I'm reading and saying, Lord, what does that mean? Not just what does it mean, but Lord, how does that apply to my life? and every 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 part of that passage i can make a conversation so don't segregate bible study and prayer the second or the third point i would make is make it thoughtful by this i mean ask questions and some of the questions that i like to ask are questions like this is there a promise for me to claim is there a sin for me to avoid is there an action for me to Follow a command for me to obey? Is there something in this verse that can apply to my life? And so I make it a thoughtful conversation with God where I'm actually thinking through and making application. We're going to study in a much more detail as we get down to um, the last, our last time together today, the fourth part of the series. We're going to be studying in much more detail the process. Of understanding and applying Scripture to our daily lives, I'm just trying to give you here, here some brief summaries and and uh, point and helpful pointers. And the the last is to make decisions. I want you to look at a couple of verses. I want you to look first at Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. This is going to illustrate why we need to not just be feeding ourselves with knowledge, but not making decisions about them. We, about that knowledge. Ezekiel chapter 33, we're going to start in verse 30. Um, Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 30. This is a very interesting story. God here is talking to the prophet Ezekiel and he, he tells him some fascinating tidbit of information. Now what's a prophet? A prophet is someone who comes with God's message, right? And Ezekiel was a prophet taking God's message to Israel. And this is what God says was really going on. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. Now, that's a good thing, isn't it? Can you imagine if there was just sort of a buzz around Houston? Let's go to GYC. Let's hear what the word of God is. That'd be a good thing, right? Right? And by the way, thousands have come here, and that's a good thing. So that's what was going on. Ezekiel, people love to come and hear you. They're gathering their friends. They're saying, come, let's hear the word of the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they, uh uh-oh. What does it say? They will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on gain, and behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on in an instrument. For they hear what they say, you say, but they will not do it. In other words, these people are sermon junkies. They love to listen to a good, powerful sermon. They actually get their friends to go and listen to a good sermon. Let's go hear what the word of the Lord is. There's only one problem with that whole picture. It's good to love the Word of God and to enjoy it. These people are doing it for entertainment, not to allow it to change who they are. They hear the Word of God, but they don't do it, right? They don't apply. So making decisions, allowing God to actually change your life is a very, very important step in our Bible study. Would you agree? One more verse, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to notice here the defining characteristic between those who are saved and those who are lost. It's very similar as we read in Ezekiel chapter 30, Ezekiel 33. Matthew chapter 7, let us notice in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So profession does not save us, does it? Unless that profession is backed up by decisions to surrender to the Word of God, all the knowledge we have isn't going to help us. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verse 24 continues. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does them, right? Hearing and doing, right? Here, uh, I will liken them to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. The distinguishing characteristic between those who are good people, Christians, But lost, and those who are good people, Christians, and saved, is that they don't just read it for entertainment value, for head knowledge. They put what they learn into practice. They are not hearers of the word only, but they are hearers and doers of the word. In the 19th century, one of the greatest evangelists was Dwight L. Moody a lot we could learn from his life. But I want to share with you one story. He was asked, invited to come to St. Louis to do an evangelistic series. And in those days, a big name like Dwight Moody would bring out large crowds. He heard before he arrived at St. Louis that the the newspaper in town, the St. Louis Globe Dispatch, was going to have a stenographer at his meetings. He was going to take down... Moody's sermons word for word, and they were going to be printed in the next morning's newspaper. When Moody heard that, he decided that he would put as much scripture as possible in his sermons because Moody knew something. Human words can't change lives. God's word changes lives. So Moody began to fill his sermons with scripture. More than usual, he quoted the word of God. And allowed the word of God to be transcribed in the morning paper. In jail in St. Louis was a criminal by the name of Valentine Burke. Valentine was in criminal. He was in prison. He had been in prison, in, in, imprisoned more than twenty-five times. He was a career criminal. All he did was crime. And he had been in prison or in jail all over the country. One morning, the jailer, when he brought him his breakfast, he threw a newspaper in the cell. Valentine saw a headline on the, on, the, on the front cover of that newspaper. And this is what the headline read The headline said, How the Jailer in Philippi Got Caught. This was the title of Moody's sermon from the night before. Well, Valentine said, the jailer in Philippi. That must be Philippi, Missouri. I've been in jail there. I know that jailer. I want to see what he did and how he got caught. So, Valentine picks up the newspaper and he opens to the article of how the jailer in Philippi got caught. And it didn't take him long to realize that instead of a story about that jailer that he knew, it was a story, it was actually a sermon. And Valentine had no use for a sermon. He had news for God or Christianity, the Bible or anything else. And so with disgust, he threw the newspaper aside. But you know, the Holy Spirit was working on Valentine's heart. And after a little while, he went back, and he picked up that paper, and he started reading it again, and, and then all of a sudden, he realized, what am I doing? I'm reading a sermon, and he threw the newspaper aside, and over and over throughout the day, he kept going back to the newspaper, picking it up, and throwing it aside, picking it up and throwing it aside, until he had read that entire sermon from the night before. In fact, he read it a couple times, and alone in his jail cell that night, Valentine gave his heart to Jesus Christ. It was... Apparent immediately, there had been a change in his life. He didn't curse. Even the next morning, they saw a difference. It was just, he was a different person. There was a peace, there was a calmness about him. Eventually, he got out of jail, and the uh, problem was, he, he was, even though he was, he was determined to live a godly life, he, he had a hard time getting work. He didn't know how to do anything legal, and... Uh, he lived with family members. He tried to get a job. Eventually he moved from St. Louis up to New York where he tried to, to get work there living with a sister and that didn't work either. Six weeks later he came back to, Chicago, uh, to St. Louis and uh, when he arrived back he got a message from the sheriff's office saying he needed to come down for some questions. And the only thing Valentine could think was one of his previous acts had caught up with him again. So he showed up at the sheriff's office, and the sheriff began asking him questions. What have you been doing? Where have you been? How's it been going? And then he asked him a question How is that new faith that you got? You still a Christian? Valentine said, You know, it's been hard, it's been a struggle, but Jesus has been faithful to me, and I want to be faithful to him. And I'm still, still a Christian. The jailer said something that completely surprised Valentine. He said, "Valentine, what you're saying is true. We know it's true because when you f- got out of jail, we were determined that you must be faking your Christianity. So we set a detective to follow you for the last six weeks. And we know that your life has really changed. We have an opening for a sheriff's deputy. and We want to hire you to work in the sheriff's office. The word of God changed a criminal, a career criminal, to being a Christian who was trustworthy and dependable. Years later, the story is that another evangelist was scheduled to come to St. Louis do an evangelistic series, and he canceled at the last moment. They looked around. Who can we find that could share the word of God? And someone had the idea. Let's ask Valentine. Valentine Burke preached in his own evangelistic series in the city of St. Louis. And some of the toughest criminals that knew his story, knew the word of God had changed him, they came to hear him, they wouldn't have come to hear some of the other preachers. Valentine's life was a testimony of the power of God's word. God's word changes lives. We're not talking about evolution here. Yes, we grow gradually, but there's something miraculous about God's word. I want to tell you something, friends. If your Christianity offers you nothing better than what you can do for yourself, it's not true Christianity. We need a miraculous experience on a daily basis. And it's through God's Word that we have that experience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've called us to study your Word. We pray, Lord, that as we uncover in the next few sessions and Throughout GYC, wherever we're going and listening, we pray that your word would have an effect upon our hearts and lives, that we might be changed. Lord, we need to be changed. We've come to GYC. We're good people, but we don't want to just be like those people in Ezekiel's day that were sermon junkies. They heard, but they never obeyed. We want your word to change our lives. We want to apply it to our hearts. We want to understand it correctly. So we ask for this. We Thank you, for it in Jesus' name. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference when all has been heard in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.